the groups that really believed in this event as we believe in them. Triumph. I'd like to see some hands in the air. I want to see some allied forces out there making a little bit of noise. You know what I'm talking about? Hello, Allied Forces, and welcome to this podcast celebrating Triumph's performance at the US Festival 40 years ago. Uh, we hope you like this podcast, and if you do, send us an email at alliedforcespodcast at gmail.com. Let us know what questions you wished we asked. We'll reach out to the band when we get a chance and see if we can get some of your questions answered. Also, if you have ideas for future Triumph-related podcasts, please let us know. To find out more about Triumph, obviously you can always go to triumphmusic.com. If you're interested in Triumph merch, you can go to officialtriumphmerch.com, and you can always follow the band on social media on Facebook and Instagram. We're gonna start this off with a question for Triumph's bassist extraordinaire, Mike Levine. How did you first hear about the US Festival? Oh, gee. We first heard about the US Festival when our agent, long lost and still beloved Troy Blakely, called and said, Steve Wozniak's doing this great big gig and he wants you to play on it. And now we'll hear from Gil Moore, the drummer and vocalist of Triumph. It sounded very unusual, of course, because it was being promoted by not one of the major concert promoters. It was Steve Wozniak from Apple Computers. So first question I had is, well, there has to be a pro involved in this. And I was told it was Bill Graham Presents, which is, of course, a famous concert promoter and concert promoting team that Bill had in San Francisco we worked with for many years. That made me realize that the show was going to be organized in a way that was completely professional. It subsequently actually was turned over to Barry Fay, so there was a changing guard, but Barry Fay at Fayline had a similar organization that was very robust. And last but certainly not least, Rick Emmett, guitarist and vocalist for Triumph. I probably heard about it from Gil and Mike sitting in a lounge in an airport or something. Were you aware of the S Festival from 82 or was the 83 version the first time it came on your radar? I was probably aware of the S Festival in 82. It had happened, but we were out touring and playing a lot of, we were doing a lot of outdoor shows in that time period, 82 and 83, through that springtime kind of thing, those May weekends that were always full of big gigs everywhere. And it would be just a question of which ones are you on? And then to answer the question, when you're out and you're playing gigs, you're hearing about other things and other people's gigs, but you're kind of living in this bubble and you're just playing your own gigs and doing your own thing and don't really hear too much about other stuff or worry about it too much. It was really a difficult decision for us to make or even wrap our heads around the whole thing because it took a while to figure out the billing, where we're going to get billed on the show and how much we were going to get paid because we were due for an indoor play in the Los Angeles area. The previous show we had played was at the Rose Bowl with Journey. We co-headlined with Journey and did like 110,000 people. And it was a tremendous success. And we needed to play an arena indoors. So we were kind of stuck between playing Long Beach Arena, two or three shows there, and doing the US Festival. What made you decide to finally go and do the US Festival? We had to go with the US Festival because when the lineup was finally put all put together and put to bed, we thought this show is going to be historical. We could not not play it. 
we had to shoehorn this date in because we were on the road, we were on a tour. The US Festival was on a Sunday. It was the last day of our week, and we played shows, I think four more, maybe even five shows that week, the last one of which was at the Tangerine Bowl the night before in Orlando. We played with CC Top and some other bands. It was quite a logistical hurdle to get over to California and, and be there for the show. So how did you do that? You flew from Orlando right after you played? Yeah, to get there, we flew right out of Orlando to LAX. So we're playing the Tangerine Bowl, I think, in Orlando with ZZ Top and Sammy Hagar and a couple other acts. And the next day, we're playing the S Festival on the other side of the, <laughs> the continent. And in order to make it work, we had to move our slot up. We switched places with Sammy because we were playing after him to playing before him so we could make the flight because there was only one flight you could get that would get us to the West Coast on time or in time, I should say. So we rushed off stage, played a, an incredibly short set, went right into a limo with our stage clothes on, changed in the limo. That was the most challenging thing was three of us changing in the limo. It wasn't a, a, a super stretch or anything. So that was rough on us. Got to the airport, made the plane. We flew with our guitars. I believe the guitars came along with us and slept on the plane or did whatever we did. I really don't remember. I just remember arriving at the motel outside of San Bernardino, I guess, in the dark and going to sleep. My name is Joe Owens, and I was the boots on the ground for the band at the US Festival. I worked in the music business in Canada for Columbia Records and did some marketing and promotion independently. Mike and I became personal friends, and then the next thing you know, he approached me and asked me if I'd be interested in working with the band. So they wanted to manage themselves, but they also wanted somebody to sort of be be the front guy, somebody with experience in records and somebody with experience in concerts and things like that. So I was the liaison between Triumph and the record company and the concert promoters and the corporate sponsors and, and all of that. Basically became the, people talk about the fifth Beatle, I became the fourth Triumph. The US Festival specifically, when the band toured, my job was usually to take care of the record guys, to take care of the press, to make sure that all of the machinery of marketing and promoting the dates and filling the seats was taken care of. But in this particular case, there was a gig in Florida. And so the guys went down, they did the gig in Florida, and that's where the road manager, who normally would be the guy who would take care of the guitars and the backstage access and things like that, he was in Florida. And so I became this sort of advanced man, road manager, marketing and promotion, PR guy, everything rolled into one for the US Festival. So I went out a few days early and got the lay of the land, met with the promoter, met with the production people, and essentially sorted out what the guys would be doing, where they'd be doing it, when, what the schedules were, and all of that. So I became the road manager, along with being the marketing and promotions tour guy. In the days before the US Festival, when I got out there, it was in many ways, unbridled chaos. What I did when I arrived was the most important thing was to make sure that all of the functional aspects of the date for the band were in place. My job was to make sure that all the logistics were looked after. Normally the band would arrive with their trucks and their guitars and, and all of their own stuff. For that particular gig though, because they were coming from across the country, they showed up, Rick and, and Mike showed up with guitars and Gil actually played on a rented kit. I met with the right people who knew what was going on with the gear because if the gear's not right, nothing's right. And what problems did you have, if any, in getting everything set up? There were some problems getting everything set up 
up because there were 10, 15 bands all talking to the same guys about the same stuff. So it was challenging to make sure that the fine details got looked after. The production was great. I mean, in terms of what they were doing, it was a monster production. And we've all seen the documentaries about Woodstocks and what nightmares those things can turn into. But this was a a well-produced gig, but it was just getting FaceTime with the right people. It's one thing for the drum kit to be there and set up. It's another thing to make sure that all the symbols are in the right places and those kind of things. So some of the challenges were just competing with just the sheer number of bands and production managers and details that those guys, the production they've had to worry about to get it done. And then on top of all of it, that was just the gear. And then all the other things, backstage access and passes and who goes where and who does what, just a sheer volume of information and data. And remember, that wasn't computer time. We weren't all running around with iPhones in those days. You said band got in, they flew in and you took them to a motel. These bands that are playing this massive festival, they were staying in a motel, not even like a hotel. When the band got in, I took them to the place they were staying. And again, some of the details are foggy, but they were basically motels and sort of small hotels. This was not downtown LA. We were out out there, San Bernardino County. It was like a motel, like a Howard Johnson's kind of thing with a nice little pool. And everybody was sitting around the pool having Budweiser's and hanging out before the gig. See, I made friends at Motel Around the Pool with Michael Anthony from Van Halen. We had a couple of bass player beers and an hour or two of conversation, just laughing and scratching and stuff. But he's really one of the few guys that I hung out with. And what do Michael Anthony and Mike Levine talk about? Are you talking about bass? Are you talking about the industry or just stuff that's inappropriate to discuss? Depends on the time of day, because we were both had to play, we didn't want to drink a lot. If it would have been at night, after you know, over some scotches, we would have had a howl. But we just laughed about the fact we were there, laughed about the road, what's it like to be a, a, a bass player in a three-piece band, like that kind of stuff. So how much I admired him, he told me how much he admired me, and it was like a little loving. And then we were both lying through our teeth. I'm John Roberts. In Canada, I was better known as J.D. Roberts. I was the co-host of the New Music Program. I was also one of the original VJs on Canada's music channel, Much Music. And I went to the US Festival with Mike, Rick, and Gil on Memorial Day weekend, 1983. I was sort of embedded with the band because we were doing a special on them for the New Music. I joined up with the band at a local hotel in San Bernardino. I think it was a Holiday Inn. We all stayed there, which is where the helicopters would land to take the bands out to the S-Festival venue. And I remember we had been hanging around the pool and our turn came to get on the helicopters. And so the band and I got on one helicopter. My cameraman got on another helicopter with a couple of guys from the road crew. And we flew out there. And it wasn't a long trip. It was only about 15, maybe 20 minutes at, at most. And we flew over San Bernardino, which is nowhere near as built up as it is now. And we flew at the Glen Helen Park, which really was just a huge patch of dirt back then. It wasn't the beautiful amphitheater with the parks and gardens that it is now. And as we got closer and closer, you could sort of see a little bit of dust rising over on the horizon. And that was from people just walking around the venue. It was so dry there and hot and dusty. And as we got closer and closer, you could start to see this massive humanity. We had been told that there was probably going to be upwards of 200,000 people. They were saying, oh, maybe we could get to a million. I think they were trying to project this as as being another Woodstock. 
So we got there and there was probably 250,000 people in the crowd and that the helicopters kind of swung low around the crowd as we came in before landing. And it was just awesome to see that mass of humanity that was out there to see all of these bands. Well, I don't like being in helicopters for any reason. And this was no exception. So my first thought is, why am I in a helicopter when I don't want to be in one? But of course, it was necessary. Flying in, looking down, people were just literally a sea of ants. There was so many people there. It was breathtaking. It was hard to imagine that many people for any kind of music concert. So we're in the middle of the desert, right? But there's some hills there. I wouldn't call them big mountains, but there's some hills. And we come up over this hill and there's like a city of people down below us, this massive amount of humanity. And we kind of looked at each other and went, uh-oh, fellas, what have we done here? <laughs> I think it probably was my first time in a helicopter, yes. And that certainly was the mind-blowing moment was you're in the helicopter and you're flying in and you're going over, you're seeing all these cars parked and stuff. And then you fly over the actual venue and you can see hundreds of thousands of people and that's a bizarre thing like to look down it's surreal to realize oh my god there's people that are three quarters of a mile away from the stage and they're in a crowd <laughs> and you're going that's a pretty big crowd so that also gives you a little bit of whoa now you're getting adrenaline now you're, you're going oh boy this is an enormous crowd. And we went, well, yeah, the more the barrier. We just, all we can do is go out there and have fun. And the crowd will have fun right along with us. So you land, what is it like backstage? Like, what do you do before the show? So exit chopper, go to the Triumph compound. Everybody had their own compound, which was draped off and cordoned off. We had a couple of trailers, and food and catering and the whole nine yards. So... We just kind of hung out. There was a tent, like a hangers-on tent that was enormous. There's a couple of mini press conferences that went on, but we just kind of kept to ourselves. So the backstage area was incredible. The stage was incredible. Every aspect of how we were treated was incredible. There's absolutely nothing you could complain about because everything was just top-notch all the way down. What do you mean when you say backstage was incredible? Like what makes backstage incredible? Just the nature of how the compounds were laid out. So it was like a little city. Everybody had a trailer, just like a movie set. Little things like the way everything was labeled. And you just had no concerns whatsoever about security. There was nobody backstage other than the bands and their crews themselves. I remember walking around backstage and Van Halen's compound, you could see like LA showbiz folks coming and going from that compound. You'd see Eddie's wife, Valerie Bertinelli with her pals that were actresses and actors and and so you, you'd be going oh man I, I recognize that guy from a, a sitcom and oh I, I recognize that stand-up comic oh recognize that rock star that's not on the bill but he's here to be backstage and hanging out with the van halen boys like so there was a lot of that where that's also sort of ramping up this thing of oh this is an event here and now i'm starting to get a little bit of nerves i'll be happy just to get out on stage so that all the rest of this stuff doesn't matter anymore. Hi, I'm Wayne Webster. I'm right now, music director for a station called Boom 97.3 in Toronto. Back in 1983, I was the music director at Chum FM. We were one of the big FM stations in Toronto. I was at the S Festival because, you know, I'm a big concert goer. I saw the lineup and just thought, this is amazing. I got to go. So when you go to the, the festival during the Sunday, I guess it was, I run into Joe Owens, who was the stage manager for Triumph. And he's like, well, someone dropped out. Do you want to come and hang with us for a 
So I was like, yeah, sure. But the compound was pretty, I guess, you know, the Van Halen was, of course, the big famous one with the huge fences and it looked like this, like, 24-hour party going on. So, yeah, there was definitely some parties going on and just a lot of people just sort of hanging out. And as people would come in, oh, so there goes David Bowie, or there goes Joe Walsh, or there goes Chrissy Hine. So it was just sort of cool watching all the folks as uh, they come through and get ready for the show. And given the scope of the magnitude of the gig, I don't know that all the bands were like Triumph, but like I said, we were particularly kind of wanting to be game ready. So we just wanted to kind of keep to ourselves, keep cool and warm up as much as we could so that when we went out on stage, the fingers would fly and the voices would work. And that was our mindset. Gil and Mike and Rick kind of described their attitude going into it as they wanted to win. They said they went back into their trailer and it was warm up and get ready and kind of prepare for the show. Did you see any of that? And in a way, it feels like there was a nervous tension, excitement? If so, did you experience any of that? The way that I have always seen the band, and they were like this at the US Festival as well, is that Rick tends to be, for the most part, the nervous Nelly. Mike is always worried that things are going to go off all right and that the band is going to sound good. And Gil's just kind of like, well, it's another event and I'm going to focus on what I do with the band. So Gil's always more chill than the other ones are, but Rick is always the one who's the worry ward. And it's probably to his credit because Rick always performs amazingly well anytime I've ever seen him in concert. I've never seen him miss a note. And they didn't that day at the US Festival. It wasn't the typical Triumph show because the typical Triumph show was all lights and explosion. This was in the middle of the afternoon. And so you didn't have the supporting technological pieces of it, the lasers, the light show, the flash pots. But the musicality was as good as I've ever seen it from those guys. I think for Gil, especially, he liked the band to be in its own environment with its own lights and its own special effects and be on his own drum riser and but I was more of a mindset of, hey, I liked outdoor shows because you didn't have all those things. Sometimes you're playing in the daylight and it was just going to be you and your tunes. And I thought that was good. I liked that. Just my songs and my guitar playing. And so I don't think the other guys had quite the same amount of devil may care insouciance about playing something like that. Yeah. There was a little bit of concern. We just looked at each other and said, hey, we just just go and play our asses off. It doesn't matter whether we have pyro or whether we're playing in the dark and have all our lights and stuff. We're a really good band. We're good musicians and, and we have great songs and the fans are going to love us. We've played daylight shows before and done very well with them as well. So we weren't really afraid of it, so to speak. But Gil was okay without having pyro, knowing that Gil says you can never have enough pyro. Well, that was one of Gil's, Gil's motto was you could never have enough pyro. There's no such thing as too much pyro. <laughs> but in all seriousness, during the daytime, pyro, mm, not so much. Pyro is more an indoor, in darkness phenomenon. But the band was well known for having this insane light show with special effects and pyro and all that. And that kind of was part of the presentation. Did you feel exposed or were you nervous about going on there without all of that? And I mean, that's kind of like a safety net that you always had. Well, we were always from the very outset when we started Triumph, we wanted to be theatrical and we wanted to have sort of a cinematic kind of landscape view of what we were doing that would somehow incorporate our music just perfectly and transition our audience from just listeners to kind of almost participants, if you will, like being drawn into the production. That was the idea. So yeah, when you strip away all that and you play outdoors, 
during the daytime. It's a different equation altogether. However, what my perspective was going in to that environment is where the press would frequently say, oh, these guys have such a massive show. It's not about the music. It's about the show. And then we, of course, we had other press reviews that would be the opposite that was like, wow, this is great music. And these guys are phenomenal musicians, but also what a great show. So we had both edges of that double-edged sword shot at us, I'll say sometimes from the press. But Going out there kind of naked, like an outdoor show in daylight, I looked at that as a litmus test for what kind of band are you? So if you can go out and have nothing, it'd be like playing indoors in an arena and just turning on white lights or the house lights and having absolutely zero. If you can get the audience fully engaged without anything, that's a great thing, a great feeling for a band to have. The great thing about Triumph was we could do both. And I think the Us Festival was a kind of a, a vindication in ways where critics would say, oh, Triumph, all sizzle, no steak. And it was like, well, all you're getting is the steak of the band playing live in the daylight here and it works. <laughs> it goes off pretty good. And we didn't get a hammered and tanked backstage like some of these other guys did before they got out there. So we actually had a pretty good day. Had a pretty good show. And were you warming up backstage or what was your attitude? One of the issues we had is we were playing with rented equipment because all our stuff was still in Florida. <laughs> so Joel couldn't try out his drums that Tama had supplied for him. I couldn't try out my Ampeg amps that Ampeg had supplied and Rick couldn't try out his Marshall amps that Marshall supplied. So it was kind of, we had a little bit of the heebie-jeebies about that and what's going to happen when we walk on stage and play, turn everything on for the first time. So that was most interesting. But yeah, we had a warm-up room, warm-up trailer that we could go in and blast away if we wanted. So in your compound, there was actually a warm-up trailer for you to like make noise and get ready? I would call it more like a tuning room. Triumph was very focused and we didn't go around partying with other bands or glad-handing backstage. We were kind of focused on more like a sports team. We were thinking we got to win the game. That was kind of our mindset. So we weren't about partying. We were about how are we going to really do a great show for our fans, getting ready for game time, warming up, making sure like we did vocal warm ups. We did the guys did warm ups on their guitars. I did drum warm ups just on pillows and stuff backstage. We tried to be game ready. So it was there's no time to really kind of go around and socialize and do things like that just wasn't our scene. So it's your time to go on and Steve Wozniak is there and I know Gil approached him. Were you there when Gil approached him? Was that planned? Like how did the interaction to ask Steve Wozniak to actually introduce you guys go? Woz was standing there and Gil grabbed him and says, come on, Woz, come on stage and introduce us. And he went, okay, I'll do that. So he was pretty honored. He worked really hard to get us to play that show. He flew to Phoenix to see us in Phoenix where we played there. He flew to Toronto, took us out for dinner. It was a hard sell for him. So he deserved to introduce us. Before the show, I was really concerned that I wanted to speak to Steve, which is really unusual. But this was a very unusual show. And I wanted to see why he was doing it, what his motivations were. I don't know. It was the beginning of a lifelong friendship. We're still pals to this day. And I'm glad I spoke to him because he told me what his motivations were, that he had been really lucky in his words with Apple computers in the fact that he invented the PC, as we all know now, and he'd done very well for himself. And he just wanted to have really a big party and bring people together. So his concept of us was 
really global. Like he talked about wanting folks as far away as Russia or the Far East to connect with the music that was being played in California. And he had various ideas on how to do that. It was really a unique approach, I'll say, to having inspiration for a concert. It was intriguing to me. I'd never heard anything like it before. And now that I've known him all these years, I realize like he has a lot of ideas that are outside the norm, things that other people don't think of. So this isn't really much of a surprise, if you really know us. So he famously introduced you. I think you were the only band he introduced. How did that happen? Well, Joe Strummer from The Clash had badmouthed Steve, which was, I thought, ridiculous, because he went down the road of, oh, this is a corporation or something. He said nothing to do with corporations. This was Steve's money had nothing to do with Apple Computer. Um, it had nothing to do with profit motive. Steve had no interest and no intention to make a profit on the US Festival, and he didn't. So he was really giving back. Joe Strummer portrayed it as if it was the opposite, that he was somehow manipulative, which was ludicrous. So I sort of came to his defense in the press and said, no, that's not what this is all about. This is a guy trying to give back who loves music. He's a huge music fan and he wants to bring people together and unite people through music. So he's doing a very good thing. Maybe resonated a bit with Steve and we chatted about it a few more times. He became kind of a, a very good friend of the band. He came to Metalworks. He came to our eighth birthday party in Toronto. We maintained a friendship for many, many years right up until today afterwards. But I, th I think probably the press conferences that were held or the various PR events leading up to it probably sparked something. It also might have been the fact that I was probably the only musician that actually inquired, like, why are you doing this? What's your motivation? Tell me more about this show, what you have planned. So I think the fact that I had an interest maybe was different. So it might have sparked that relation. Steve brought us on stage. So that was a nice touch and said that we were the band that believed in, in them the way they believed in us, which was pretty cool to know when we went on that there was that feeling coming from him. One of the groups that really believed in this event is we believe in them, Triumph. So after Waz introduces you, what is it like on stage as you're getting ready to play? The game begins, so to speak. The exhilaration of that is kind of like, I don't know, an airplane taking off or something. It was for a band, you kind of look at each other in the eye as your glance catches across the stage and you go, here it is, man. Strap it on. There we go. Like, get that seatbelt on and let's hit the gas. It's hard to explain really that that sensation, but I think that's the highlight actually is just that the engines are revved up. You're on the starting line and bang, that gun rings and away you go. And yeah, it's a feeling of feeling the inertia of everything that went before just melt. And all of a sudden, the rocket takes off and away you go. It's something else. Did it make you nervous that the crowd was so huge? Yeah, it makes you nervous to be in front of a crowd that size. It makes you nervous to be on a bill with all of those other acts. But it makes you nervous just to be on like an outdoor show like that, where there's not really any sound check. The crew line checks your gear and you're just going with a backline provided, et cetera, et cetera. You're already kind of going, oh, gee, but you've done it before. So all you got to do is just kind of grit your teeth and just got to plow through it and it's going to be fine. You're going to get your sea legs in the first 60 seconds or minute and a half. You're going to, I'm sure it's like guys that are athletes, like let's say you're a hockey player or something and you're nervous before the game starts, but as soon as the puck drops and the game starts, now you got something to worry about that's what your job is. And so that's not worry. That's just work. But yeah, sure. There would have been some nerves. The sound on stage was great. The sound system was phenomenal. Everything about the stage 
crew, everything that Steve did with that show, he just gave Feline and their team the carte blanche, the best of everything for these artists. And to their credit, we didn't have any problems. All we had to do was just kind of tee it up and go for it. The monitors were pretty good halfway through the song. We got the monitors tuned up, at least from my point of view. I think Rick was okay. Gil was never okay with monitors, so who knows. But the sound was good. The weird part was the fact that there was nobody within 30 yards of the band, kind of. There was nothing but cameras. There was cameras in the sky. There was cameras on stage. There was cameras flying back and forth across the front of the stage. And there's no... It was weird for me because didn't have that audience communication because you're way too far away from them. So for me, I realized this is a TV show, so you just play to the cameras is what you got to do and not worry about it. Then I was fine. It's like you're standing in front of a jet engine. When you're playing outdoors at the US Festival, you're hitting a chord and it's coming out of the PA and it's just, it's drifting away and on over the hills and over the people. And you don't really get, you might hear like, whoa, you're not really feeling this, the intensity of a crowd reaction, because they were such a distance away behind the barricades and stuff that it was almost inconsequential. I felt like I was playing for the cameras. Like, there were all these cameras that were on dollies and on arms, and, and so that's what I felt like I was doing, was I'm just shooting a video here. Now, that's a different kind of energy than playing for an audience, which is not to say that I didn't run out and run along the ramps. And there were moments where I would play something and look out and there'd be eye contact with some folks and they'd be doing something and going crazy. But generally speaking, you're just up on stage and you're a long way away. You're kind of going, okay, well, I would turn and be playing with Mike or turning and play with Gil. And there was more interaction between the guys in the band than there necessarily was with the audience. It was beyond belief how big that audience was and from the stage you really couldn't see the back of the audience like your eye went out over the horizon you'd kind of see the main front of house sound and then behind that you'd see like a set of delay towers and then behind that you'd see the audience the audience would be that far away from the stage when you'd ask for a response and get them to yell you couldn't hear them like i say no interaction between the band and the audience other than You'd look out and there'd be hands in the air and people's mouths are moving. So the first song we played was Too Much Thinking and it never made it to the DVD because someone in the soundtrack didn't record it for some reason. They had some technical glitch, so it kind of vanished into the ether. I think the story goes, somebody forgot to press the record button in the truck, recording truck, or they were just having technical difficulties and that's what they used to cover up the technical issues they were having. Fact is that song was, we couldn't use the song. There was only bits and pieces of it or half of it that actually got recorded. So for the purposes of this recording that you're actually listening to, we pulled a version of Too Much Thinking off a bootleg record. So I hope you enjoy it because we sure didn't enjoy listening to what they recorded for us at the SS.
the main thing was to try to stay cool because it was brutally hot. And a lot has been made about the fact that we all had white or somewhat white clothes. If you were backstage, the funniest scene I thought was we were all in our white clothes and Judas Priest went on before us and Robin and his crew came through and they were wearing the full-on black leathers and studs on psalms that they always wore on stage. And we were chuckling just thinking, you guys are going to melt. You're going to be like the Wicked Witch of the West and <laughs> you're just going to be a puddle. It is so hot. It's 100 and whatever it was, 10 degrees plus. So, yeah, there was a lot of activity backstage of all these bands, but I think the heat was the thing that everybody was thinking about. It was really hot. There's a lot of people who talk about the white outfits versus everybody else showing up in dark and Triumph showing up as the good guys in white. Triumph always has been more of a white hat band than a black hat band. <laughs> and Rick is in the same way. And, and Gil once told me that when they would write songs, they'd say to Rick, Rick, we got to write in a minor key. And Rick would say, no, I like writing in a major key. Gil said, he's, he's like the cowboy on the Palomino wearing the white hat coming to rescue the fair man in all of his songs. Gil was wearing, I think, a blue and white striped t-shirt. And Rick was wearing some strange sleeveless white shirt with a red stripe across it and white pants. I think Mike was dressed pretty much all in white as well. Now, when you're in the heat of Southern California, uh, that time of year, white is probably a good color to wear, <laughs> but, but, but it did make them stand out from the crowd. They looked more like a visiting NHL team than they did a hardcore rock band. I didn't wear a hockey jersey because it was too hot. Number two, it wasn't in a hockey rink. So that's kind of silly to wear a hockey shirt at an outdoor show. However, I think I wore a University of California t-shirt, I believe, which was a basketball shirt or one of the teams or something. There was a number on it, I believe. The heat really didn't bug me. It was hot, mind you, but there was good air conditioning on stage. So it really didn't trouble me. But Rick and Gil, Rick, because he had a lot more response he had to sing, he had to play a lot of guitar solos and move around. And Gil, it's a very physical job being a drummer. So he had, he had problems with the heat. But more, I think that those two guys had more problems with the dust, because that's what I had a problem with, was the dust rather than the heat. It's once the dust gets in your nose and your mouth, you start to sound like I sound right now. <laughs> like you've got a cold and your sinuses are all blocked up. There was not much you could do about the dust because it just kept on coming so you just had to keep going and keep drinking water and swallowing the dust or spitting it out or whatever i mean one thing i mention every time i talk about this is that for some reason nobody thought about the fact that when you're in the desert and it's 100 degrees you're going to have dust you're going to have a lot of it and they actually got local fire stations to send their trucks out to hose down the crowd, hose down the ground, because the dirt was so pervasive and the dust was so pervasive that Mike actually said it was on his fretboard, like it was on the neck of his guitar, that it was gritty when they were trying to play. When you'd inhale, like either Gil or Rick would inhale to try to sing, he had a mouthful of dust. We were sneezing mud for a week after that gig. I mean, it was, and that was one thing that was pervasive. So there was this particulate in the air that as singers, we were inhaling. So Mike did okay with it, but Rick and I did not. So we both had the feeling that we'd just smoked 10 packs of Marlboros straight. We were both kind of noticing like we were short of breath in a bad way. So it can't have been as bad for me as it was for Gil. I say this when I do interviews a lot, and I'll say it again here. To be the drummer in Triumph was an incredibly hard gig 
because he sang half the tunes. Never mind playing all the drums. And Gil was one of those kind of drummers where he liked to go. He didn't like to go boom, whack, boom, boom, whack, boom, whack, boom, boom, whack for too long before he would go boom, whack, boom, whack. Like he was like Keith Moon and all these fills all the time. And so he must have been like just out of gas. Halfway through the show, like it's a good thing there was a guitar solo in the middle of the thing because I'm sure he probably went back and grabbed that oxygen mask and he needed it. Like, and then he's got to sing songs. Every second song is him. He's got to be the vocalist. An incredibly hard gig. So I don't think people give him as much credit as he deserves for playing the style of drums that he played in the trio and then singing half the tunes. Like, there's not a lot of guys that are singer drummer. The Graham Funk had a little of it. The guy in the Eagles, Don Henley. But Henley was not the kind of drummer that was pushing himself the way Gilmore pushed himself as a drummer. Henley was just soft by in time and the occasional crash cymbal. I think the thing that stood out to me about the show was the comradeship that the three of us had on stage. And having Waz introduce us, it was a welcoming feeling for the band. When we walk out on that stage with the originator of the idea and we were the only artist that he introduced and we hit the first guitar notes and the first notes on the drums one of my favorite songs to play that day was allied forces and the reason is because the lyric is about fans the lyric the allied forces are triumph fans But so right in front of the stage was tense. But as you moved out, because there were 300,000 people there. So as you moved out to the crowd, it became a little more chill. But when the band gets on stage, you have to, is the gear going to work? Is the PA going to shut down? Is everything going to be okay? Is Rick going to forget the words halfway through the song? <laughs> like, who knows? You don't know what's going to happen. Is some guy going to decide this would be the best time for him to jump up on stage and give Mike a hug? So you're watching all of that stuff and making sure that everything is happening the way it's supposed to be happening. Is the mix right? Whatever, whatever. And then Rick decides that, well, I think I'll jog across in front of the scrim. And like, oh, geez, what are you doing? And so then he comes back and then he sits down. And one of the most extraordinary moments at that whole gig was when Rick decided to sit down on the lip of the stage and play classical guitar. And it was magical because here's all these people and screaming and yelling. And it just stopped as Rick was like playing this beautiful classical piece and then jumped back up, back on the stage. Let's talk about your solo because your solo is kind of one of the iconic moments of the event. And it's you in front of half a million people alone. There's no fear going into that. Okay, well, if you put the question to me about being solo in front of half a million people, it makes it sounds like I should be afraid. If I had any common sense, I would be afraid. But the truth of the matter is that when you're in that moment and the set has reached that point, I've got all of my stage juice running through me and I've got all of my sort of cocky arrogance of being a rock star and being a show-off guitar player kind of thing. And I'm going to be able to carry that moment. I may not have a great night or a great afternoon, but I'm not going to worry about whether or not I'm nervous or afraid of this moment. My job is to attack that moment. My job is to own that moment. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set out to try and own the moment. Whether I get it or not, that's going to be for an audience to decide. But I'm not going to feel fear. I'm a professional. I'm doing what I've trained to do. So 
you kids shouldn't try this at home. Good luck trying to fit a half a million people into your backyard. Now, as a man on the cusp of turning 70, I look back on something like that and I go, what was I thinking? Who is that guy that had that kind of chutzpah? Like, it's wonderful and miraculous that it even happened. I go, Ugh. I can tell you kids out there that I was not on drugs. I was completely straight, but I was on something. And I think it was just testosterone and, I don't know, adrenaline. When Rick's doing his solo, like, we're usually backstage toweling off, getting hydrated and trying to recharge. I know for me, like I always had an oxygen tank. So I would take a few hits of oxygen just to really feel more energy and so on. Because playing drums and singing has always been very taxing. If the songs are energetic, it's a lot easier if you're doing a ballad and you're playing two and four kind of slowly and that sort of thing. But up-tempo songs, and I sang a lot of up-tempo songs, you're kind of doing double duty, I'll say. I was trying to catch my breath and recharge my batteries and get out there and have energy just like we were at the starting gate again. So Rick didn't have a whole lot of time for guitar changes. So the famous Ackerman guitar, which looks pretty much like a Les Paul that he used so much on stage, was the key instrument for this. And he walked down off the stage down, put his feet on the catwalk, which was just below the stage where some of the cameras were set. And he sat down and he played his typical acoustic piece. And I don't think that the crowd knew what was about to hit them. But Rick is just such an accomplished player. And he is just such a beautiful guitarist, not just technically, but musically as well, that the crowd sat there and watched and appreciated everything that he did. And then, of course, he starts launching into the burning part of the solo. But it's a little bit of a surprise for some people who were expecting nonstop rock, for somebody to sit down on the stage and play classical music. But Rick can pull it off. And then now when you see guitarists like Slash with the song Anastasia, where there's that beautiful acoustic piece that begins that song. That was a real signature for Rick, and I think a lot of other very famous guitarists have adopted that style. the benefit of having a zoom lens so even though the crowd was ways away and i want to say maybe it was 75 or 100 feet away from the front of the stage we got to see individual faces and people were rocking out to triumph they loved the set they loved the band literally every lyric that was sung by either Gil or Rick, they were singing along to, and the fans were just out there in the sun and the heat and the dust, and they were spraying water hoses on the crowd as well, having a great time. So this was a really, really successful gig for them to play, and it really launched them at that point, right up with all the other huge acts that were coming out of California in the 1980s. I had some great spot to watch the band from the side, and it was amazing, like, the stage was so big, of course, there's only three of them out there, but they filled it, and it's funny, like just a few years ago, they were, they were playing like a pre-show at Ontario Place here. And then all of a sudden, here they are in the middle of smack dab with Scorpions, Van Halen, and Judas Priest, and Ozzy. So seeing the Toronto boys knock it out of the park, because 
yeah, they were on that day. Like it was just one. Well, you can tell that they were pumped and they were having just a great time out there. And can't really see the audience, but they were so into it. It was one of those magic days. When Gil would sing, it would just be my job to be running around. So the songs didn't really matter that much to me. They were just soundtrack for, oh, I've got to sell this. I got to go to the front and strike rock star poses. If there was a, an eagle ramp or there were wings to or PA to climb up on. We'd done some gigs where with Sammy, and that guy was like, he would become a trust monkey. <laughs> like, just climbing up, and he'd be singing from the top of the PA stack, and I'd be going, whoa. So... I already had an inclination towards this thing of if you're on a big stage and a live thing, you got to move around like crazy. You got to be larger than life. You got to be a cartoon character. Those were kind of the big moments for me. Always the guitar solo and then fight and magic. Was there a song or a moment that was really poignant to you or stood out to you? I can't think of anything that was overly special, only because the whole set was special. Just being there was special. So I think probably the most enjoyable, to use the word poignant is okay, I guess. But I think that we pulled it off and we knew we did. We played great. And when we took our bow at the end, it was like, hey, guys, we're part of history, and we show up really well at history. After the show, I think Rick and I felt, I don't want to say we knocked it out of the park, but we were high-fiving. We just went, yeah, we did it. Good for us. Feeling of victory. As I said, it's almost like a sports team being in the dressing room saying, hey, we won. Awesome. High-five. Did you stay around, or who stayed around from the band? So now we're talking about Mike Levine, because he's the one that... <laughs> <laughs> would do that, would hang around, and Rosie too, they they liked the scene. But Rick and I, we just wanted to get out of Dodge as fast as possible. So Rick and I were literally out the door and into the back of a limo and like changing our clothes in the back of the limo on the way to LAX, uh, you know, out of a little carry-on bag. We were just gone. What were you and Rick talking about in that limo ride after the show? Well, on the way back from the show, Rick and I were, I mean, first of all, kind of focused on how the air, because of a combination of the heat and the fact that a lot of the, call it a semi-amphitheater style location there in Glen Helen Park had been subject to a lot of earth moving. We got into, how did you, in the middle of that song, did you hear what I did that, was that good or was that bad? And did you catch this? And sort of critiquing the show. And then, of course, I guess after you get through all that stuff, then you start talking about how amazing the gig was and how just crazy large the audience was. I wanted to see Van Halen. My wife wanted to stick around because David Bowie was playing the next day. And so I said, yeah, yeah, OK, OK, whatever. But Scorpions were cool. They had a really smart manager, David Krebs. He got the U.S. Air Force to do a flyby for the show, <laughs> the beginning of the show, which I thought was very clever. But they were really good. I don't, still don't know how them and Priest handled the heat with the leathers on. I couldn't believe that they would do that. I thought they'd come out in shorts and tank tops, but leather ones, of course. But at least something a little cooler than what they would normally wear, but they went full on, full dress. It was incredible. The start of Van Halen's set, they started great. They were just power on, power on. It was awesome. 
But maybe 20 minutes into the show, 25 minutes, David started to talk. And 25 minutes into the show, David was still talking. 30 minutes into the show, David was still talking. 50 minutes into the show, David was still talking. The band's not playing. It's David's just talking. So we turned around, went to the helicopter shuttle station and took a jumper back to the hotel. And I think what made it so special for Triumph and what made Triumph so special that day was the fact that, like I just said earlier, they were so different. They had such a different posture and it wasn't leather and it wasn't heavy and it wasn't dark and it wasn't angry. It was these three guys, three guys dressed in white-ish, playing really positive music, playing it really well, getting the crowd excited, getting them involved. I mean, Mike standing there, come on, clap your hands. And 300,000 people clapping their hands is deafening. And they all did. I mean, it just did whatever Mike told them to do. So I think, yeah, in many, many ways, Triumph really shine, shone, whatever the word is on that day, set apart from the other bands. Because when people spoke about them, they said, what a great set. It was really cool. And it was none of the sort of negativity and scariness that went on with some of the bands. Was there any sort of reverberation felt for their career, in your opinion? I think to a large degree in Canada, Triumph had always been seen as secondary to Rush. Rush was the Canadian power trio, and Triumph, while it was always really appreciated, was sort of like the second cousin to Rush. And Gil always told me, we're huge in the United States. If, if you knew how big we were in places like Texas and Arizona, you'd see a different side of the band than you see in a lot of cities in Canada. So when we went down there to the US Festival to cover them, a lot of people from Canada were saying, wow, Triumph is playing along with Ozzy Osbourne, Scorpions, Quiet Riot, and Van Halen. How do they get on that bill? And they got on the bill because of the fact that Wozniak was a big fan of Triumph. But musically as well, people really, to some degree, have not given Triumph their due. When you go back and you listen to some of their most famous songs, Magic Power, Lay It on the Line, Hold On, those are terrific songs. To, to this day, every time I play Magic Power, my wife says, and she grew up in the late 1970s and 80s, she, she says, that was my favorite song when I was in high school. So Triumph, to some degree, in Canada, was an underappreciated band. But when people got word back home that they had been on this enormous stage, with all of these other headliners, I think there was a new respect for the boys. There really was a sense of pride that I had for watching not only Triumph, the band, but watching one of my best friends, Gil Moore, and a couple of guys that I'd gotten to know, Rick and Mike, uh, up there on stage just killing it in front of that crowd. The Canadian bands could leave it all on the stage just like any other headlining act, whether it be a British headlining act or an American headlining act, that they could play with the big boys. It wasn't the Canadian Football League against the NFL. It was a level playing field and Triumph knocked it out of the park that day. So the impact that playing the US Festival had on Triumph, I think was, was pretty significant at the time because not only was it great that they played there, not only was it great that they were in the company of all of those bands, that because you're known by the company you keep. So for them to be on that day and for them to play in sort of have the slot that they had to play on that day and to have done really well and acquitted themselves really well at the gig all had a really positive halo effect. The gig itself had a good history because again, that can sometimes be a problem. If you do a great job at a horrible gig that everybody hated because bad things happened, then you've got that hanging around your neck that, oh God, why did we play the US Festival? But the gig was good. It was technology time. So right around that time period, Apple was hot and Steve Wozniak and technology was on the rise and all that. So there were a lot of things that the US Festival 
brought to the table right around that time period, MTV interactions and things like that. But the fact that they just did a great job, and that's what everybody said about them after the gig, was that they did great and they played really well. The fans loved it, obviously. Do I recall any sort of specific getting a gig that they really wanted to have that they couldn't get? That wasn't Triumph's problem. Triumph didn't have a problem sort of playing anywhere, getting any gigs. It just was another notch in their belt and a good one, but not because they were there, but because they did such a great job when they were there. That was, I think, the most important thing. And it was the halo effect of, did you see Triumph at the US Festival? They were incredible. They stole the day. I didn't think when we finished playing, I knew we went over well. I knew that part with the audience. I didn't think that we probably were going to go over any better or any worse than anybody else, to be honest with you. It's one of those things you can't tell until <laughs> later and other people make that decision for you. Triumph is one of those bands that, and they were huge in Texas, and I think it sort of woke a lot of people, not just in Toronto, but in Canada, going, they're one of our bands. Like, what's going on? Like, how come we're going down the States and stuff like that? And I think it sort of opened up a lot of people's eyes in that this band is that good. And of course, that became you know this huge band that you couldn't ignore. And of course, they wrote some great songs. Just worked great for radio. Triumph, I think, will always be remembered as one of the biggest bands to ever come out of Toronto. We have Rush, you know, Triumph, but from a rock standpoint, there's not many rivals to what they have done. Honestly, I don't know. It's obvious it's for sure put us in the hierarchy of the rock world for a long time, even to this day for that matter. So I just think it was one of those things that everybody that was on that show will always remember it. Anybody that was at that show will never forget it. And there's probably a lot of people that wish they would have been at that show. So the good news is there is some documentation of it from a historical point of view. And that's really good for rock history, I think. The S-Festival DVD is what most of your fans have seen and studied and watched. Did you edit that at Metalworks? How is that different than the original broadcast? We were at a point in time, I think all rock bands in that era were concerned about video recordings. So I was more concerned than most and ended up working it out through our agent that we owned all our own rights to our videos and we just licensed back to the Unison Corp the right to do the Showtime broadcast that people saw in America and elsewhere and kind of knew that we were going to eventually want to curate our own little mini documentary or DVD on that day because it was going to be special. We brought everything back to Metalworks and had it archived for years. And that's how we were able to produce the DVD and the CD that came out. And that was a good decision at the time. How much does the DVD version differ from what was broadcast that day? Is it the same footage or did you guys make your own edit of that footage? The DVD that we produced went back into the edit bay and I can't remember how different it may or may not have been from the broadcast, but we certainly, we had all the individual cameras as well as the director's cut and all of that. And the guys were able to, I think, take a new lens into that performance and produce something that was a little more custom 
from a Triumph perspective. Most of this will be listened to by the hardcore, fanatical Triumph fans. But for someone who's just hearing about Triumph or something, what exactly is Metalworks? Metalworks has been a fixture in Triumph's life from a very early stage. Originally, Metalworks was actually not called Metalworks. It was called Design Staging, and it was our sound and lighting company that I had started. I'll call it a kid company that started kind of in my parents' basement. And by the time Triumph got rolling, it had the speakers and some of the lighting and so on that we used in the very, very early carnations of the band. And then there was this point in time when it kind of got rolled into what we thought of as like a clubhouse, rehearsal factory, demo recording studio. And that kind of morphed into the first incarnation of Metalworks Studios. And then there's this kind of organic growth over time where we just decided very quickly, actually, let's make this a world-class studio. Let's not just make it something for our exclusive use or just making demos. We're on the road most of the time anyway. And it morphed quite quickly. And then, of course, later on, after our touring career, I built a bunch of studios around the original Studio One, and it became a commercial complex. And we've had many, many big artists come through here, Guns N' Roses and Prince and Tina Turner and David Bowie. Like, there was many, many artists that have come through over the years that kind of made us proud. I think what makes the S-Festival so special is that it was really the first big festivals after Woodstock. There were a lot of other smaller festivals after Woodstock, but nothing like the US Festival. And the fact that it was bringing together all these huge bands like Van Halen and Bowie and The Clash. Who else was there? Flock of Seagulls, In Excess, all the new wave bands of the day. It brought together these huge acts in one place. And did it in sunny California, which always has a way of attracting more attention than if it were held in the, nothing against Iowa. If it were held in the middle of Iowa, it probably wouldn't have attracted the same attention. And the fact that the founder, the co-founder of Apple Computer was the guy who was behind the whole thing, I think gave it more cachet than it might have had if somebody else had been behind it and if it were somewhere else. This was just the biggest gathering of bands that there had been since 1969 in a huge venue like this. And I think that's probably why people look back on the S Festival as really being a seminal moment in the history of rock and roll. Can we- I think I always knew this show was going to be very impactful in our career arc because I could just sense it. I could feel it coming. I definitely couldn't say that with any certainty, oh, this is going to be the biggest show in American music history for the next 20 years or something, or the biggest show since Woodstock, or there wasn't that sort of certainty. But when I talked to Steve about what he was doing, and I talked to Bill Graham's team and our agent, Troy, and I thought about this show a lot before it it started, because there was initially there was the, do we really want to do this? Is this a good idea for Triumph? Should we, they want to book us, but should we go on this show for this reason or that reason? And when I became convinced we should do the show, the big part of it was I thought I thought the show had a potential to be a landmark rock festival 
for that era. And it turned out it was. And those memories stick with you. So 40 years later, it's just almost like being there again. I can feel the same way. I think about the show that probably fans were that were there. It's just we were looking north, they were looking south, or we were looking east, they were looking west. We were all there at the same time. We all felt the same things. It was quite an experience. I think there's a self-evidence that sort of exists when you watch something like that. I can't imagine how a fan or even somebody who was not even a fan, but they were just a bystander, a casual observer. I think they watch something like that and go, man, it must be fun to be in a rock band. That must be a, a crazy, exhilarating, wonderful thing to get the chance to be able to do that. And it's a real gift. Like, you're lucky, you're kind of blessed that you get to be somebody that does that for a living and has those moments like an Us Festival moment. In amongst all the other kind of great moments that you get as part of your career, you get a, a surpassing moment like that one. And my God, there was cameras there and we edited this thing together. And so I would hope that people kind of come away from it and go, wow, that must be fun. That must be awesome. Well, from a legacy point of view, I would say that the US Festival has got to be in the top one or two. You can't not have it there. And what would it be in competition with? That would be a good question, too, because there's a lot of memorable shows that were kind of important that we played on. I guess US Festival would have to be number one on the legacy chart. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast celebrating Triumph's historic performance at the US Festival 40 years ago. If you liked what you heard, please let us know at Allied Forces Podcast at Gmail. Again, to find out more about Triumph, go to officialtriumphmerch.com or triumphmusic.com. You can also follow the band on Facebook, Instagram, all your favorite social media feeds. We want to say a special thank you to everyone who participated in making this podcast. Thank you, John Roberts, Joe Owens, Wayne Webster, and Harry Witts, and of course, Rick, Mike, and Gil. And especially all of you for supporting Triumph for all these years. This podcast was edited by Brian DeMeglio and produced by Greg Ross and Jesse Cannon. We hope you enjoyed this. And just remember, Triumph loves you. <laughs>